So this morning we're going to talk about forgiveness and the need, the necessity for forgiveness is what separates us from every religion on the planet. This need for our repentance and our reconciliation to God. Because without repentance, there is no Christian life. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Because with a recognition of sin, a need for repentance and forgiveness, there is ultimately reconciliation with God. Why? Why is that so necessary? Why do we talk about forgiveness and repentance and grace? Why so much? Why can't we just talk about good things? Why can't we just talk about moral imperatives? Let me tell you why. Why? It's because an eternal, transcendent, perfect God created perfectly the sky, the waters, the earth, the plants, the animals, and last in his image, man and woman. And they lived perfectly in communion with God. But pride and desire to be like God led them to rebel, led them to eat fruit that was leading unto death. They said, no, God, your ways are not good enough. We want to be like you. We want to eat of this fruit and know what you know. Be careful what you ask for. Because when they did, what we call the fall happened. That perfection that was in the garden was shattered. Because of the actions of man, nothing man could do on their own could repair that. So when that communion, that fellowship with God is broken, all hell broke loose. And so sin and pain and death and toil came into the human experience. So for hundreds and thousands of years, the earth was difficult to control. Animals were not easy uh, to control either. And life is difficult. Childbirth is painful. People will hurt your feelings because of the fall. It was not God's primary design. God's ultimate design is for man to be in perfect fellowship and reconciliation with him. And only could man who destroyed that fulfill it, but it had to be done perfectly. I don't know if you look around this room, you don't have to look long, but none of us are going to fulfill that perfectly. And only God, like we just sung a moment ago, could fulfill his own wrath because God is loving, but he's also just. No sin goes unpunished. And so after the fall, there needed to be a perfect redemption. It's only could be possible for someone who is perfect and only God is perfect. So God sent his son, Jesus, to walk on this earth, to live perfectly, to live the standard of the law. We couldn't live ourselves. And because he bore the penalty for sin, we even have a chance to be forgiven. Not because we're good, because we can do anything good, because of God's grace. And the beautiful hope that we will celebrate in a few weeks and that we talk about every week is that he lived perfectly. He died perfectly and he rose again perfectly so that death could no longer hold those who trust in him for forgiveness. And one day, that will all be perfected. That will all be 
brought back into its perfect fulfillment in the garden, but better. So that is our hope. The reason why we need forgiveness is because it's not just about being a better us. It's about perfect fellowship with a loving Father who will one day redeem all things again. We will walk in perfect harmony with Him, with each other, and with all of creation. Or, you spend eternally, eternity separated from God apart from repentance and forgiveness. There's no middle ground. There's no easy path to this. But yet again, the easiest thing we can do, cry out to God, is oftentimes the hardest thing. To cry out against our own pride. Hope you guys don't mind getting real a little bit this morning. I know we usually like to skate across the surface and keep it nice and bubbly here. Just kidding. Um, But we're going to get real this morning. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about the ugliness of our condition. None of us are exempt from that. And so we're also going to follow David's pattern here. I want us to look at a couple verses because what we see this morning in, in, in David we're going to see all throughout the Gospels. In Mark 1.15, the first words of Jesus recorded in Mark's Gospel are telling of the rest of his ministry and the rest of God's revelation. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Jesus didn't come with nice teaching. He, he came with repentance. Turn from your sin and turn to me. Because in your sin there's death. In me there is forgiveness and life everlasting. When Jesus died, was rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent his Holy Spirit to the young church. What was the first message that this young church proclaimed in Acts? First, or chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is one unified message. Christ in his ministry, the apostles in their ministry. And in 1 John, one of the most beloved letters to the early church, and one of the latest letters written, this theme continues. John does not want his young congregations to forget that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's read our text in Psalm 32 this morning. Let's pray and let's let's walk through this. Because a lot of times we think of repentance and forgiveness as something that's in the New Testament. It's only after Jesus. But David understood this better than anyone. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of the great water shall not reach him. 
You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all the upright in heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love to proclaim your goodness and your mercy and your love for us, which are everlasting to everlasting. But in our culture today, we're scared of your judgment. We're scared that you are righteous and that you will punish every sin. So we don't want to talk about that. But we are doing a disservice because sin is real. Judgment is real. Death is real. But thankfully, none of that holds sway within you. In you, there's, there's mercy and there is justice and there is forgiveness. And for those who are forgiven, there is peace that passes all understanding. There is peace that makes no sense otherwise, other than by your grace. And this morning, I just pray that David's process would challenge us, would spur us on to righteousness, to come before you with our sin and look to you for our salvation, for our forgiveness, so that we can walk in your ways and rejoice forever that we are called your children. That's why we gather, that's why we're here, and there is no other message that we will ever proclaim. We thank you for sending your son. Thank you for a sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that he didn't stay in the tomb. We thank you that he's still at your right hand to intercede for us every time we screw up. We thank you that, that we can pray in his name and you hear us. Because you love us, because we are yours, because we are forgiven in the name of Jesus. Amen. So each week, I've chosen a different kind of psalm. Uh, We've gone through psalms of lament, we've gone through psalms of wisdom, of confidence. This is what's called a penitent psalm. uh, Because at the climax is David's confession. He's penitent before God. But like many psalms, it includes elements of wisdom and thankfulness. And we'll address those as well. Now historically, this psalm was read uh, to begin the, the Lenten season. Uh, But to believers, this is applicable all year round. And just kind of a side note, um, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with Lent. We don't celebrate it specifically. Uh, But for us, if we're true to the gospel, if there is something in your life that is between you and God, you don't need Lent for that. You You should fast from that anytime that happens. We should remember the cross, not just for 40 days before Easter, but every Sunday and every day all year round. So for us, the process of Lent, foregoing something to grow closer to God, is a daily practice, not a yearly practice. Just so you know. know. Psalm 32. This was St. Augustine's favorite psalm. I love what he says uh, about this. He says that the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself as a sinner. For we recognize who we are 
that we are sinners, that we are imperfect. There is no knowledge beyond that. So before we get into the psalm, I want you to see the structure a little bit very quickly so you, uh, you see where David's going here. Because sometimes it seems like he jumps around a little bit. Um, and then we're going to walk through it. Verses 1 and 2 are the purpose of the psalm. This is his proclamation, his beatitude. Blessed are. Blessed are the forgiven. So that just sets the foundation. And after that, he begins his, his process. Because notice it's general in verse 1 and 2. But in verse 3, it says, for when I kept silent. Here's the problem. David introduces the problem. And then, then verse 5, the process uh, transitions into this turning. For I acknowledge my sin. When he acknowledges his sin, there's provision by God. And we see that in different aspects in verses 6 through 9. And then the product of all that is the celebration in verses 10 and 11. So hopefully it, it makes sense. Uh, this is what we're going to walk through now. But just so you get a sense, this is not David skipping around here. There's an intentionality in beginning with praise and ending with praise and walking us through his process in the middle. Also, I want you to see there's a pattern of threes in here. We're going to look at some of them. Uh, three descriptions of sin, three descriptions of forgiveness, three descriptions of anguish, three descriptions of celebration. This is intentionality. Now, if we learn anything from our James study, the words that are repeated, the themes that are repeated are for emphasis. And so in the Hebrew way of writing, when you said something twice, it means, listen, this is important. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's important. When you say something three times, it's ultimate. Because when they sing around the throne room of God, they don't say holy, holy. They say holy, holy, holy. There's this ultimate trinity of worship. And when you say something three times, it means pay attention. Because this is not up for, not up for debate. And also, hopefully, in our James study, it's helpful us to figure out how we define our words. Because a lot of these words like transgression and sin and iniquity, we think we know what they mean. But when we dig into them a little deeper, it helps us understand the depth of the gospel message. So we're going to do that a little bit today. Um, so first thing we're going to see here in Psalm 32 is it's described as a masculine of David. Well, English readers have no idea what that means. Uh, but it's a word that, as far as we understand, it means instruction. So there's instruction in this. David's saying, I want you to learn something. This isn't just me before God. This is for you as well. So that sets the foundation for all this. But verse 1 begins with a beatitude. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. You notice any, any threes in there? There is, there is three of two different things. First, we're going to look at the, the three aspects of sin, of wickedness, of the fall that we mentioned earlier. What are they? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The Lord, and whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Transgression means to rebel, it means to depart. It's a departure from God Himself. I transgress against you, David, in Psalm 51, we read this earlier, against you and you alone have I sinned. Transgression is us rebelling against God. Sin. 
continues the problem. Sin, we've heard, is um, falling short, missing the mark. It's an archery term. Uh, But a lot of times we think, oh, sin's not that bad because the bullseye is right in the middle. And if I miss the mark, it's not as bad as if I hit the middle. No, missing the mark is like trying to hit a pin-sized bullseye from 5,000 yards away with a simple bow and arrow. You're going to miss every time. It's not possible. This is not a simple straying from the center. This is not even getting close to the target. This is missing the mark of God's perfect standard. God's perfect. There is, there's, this is not horseshoes. You can't get close to the pin. His law is a perfect standard. Without Christ, as we'll see in a moment, everyone misses the mark. Then we have iniquity. This is kind of the overarching category for all of this. It is moral perversion. It encompasses both transgression and sin. It's rebellion against God and failure individually. It's all-encompassing to say that we are corrupted ourselves. Our iniquity. I mean, this is the problem. This is the big problem. So you can see why David begins with, blessed is the one who these things no longer apply to. And then he answers with three positives to the three negatives. Three positives, blessed are the ones whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and who the Lord does not count his iniquity. Forgiven. This word means to be lifted up. And this encompasses the other three. The, the, the burdens of sin, the weight of sin, the condemnation of sin is literally lifted off. When we talked about Pilgrim's Progress, this word forgiven is depicted with Christian carrying this big backpack full of heavy burdens that when he walks in the narrow way, he can drop behind him. And now this weight has been lifted. So not only is the, the, the weight lifted, but the condemnation for sin is covered. This is the same word we use for atonement. It's, it's, it's concealed. It's having a regretted action concealed so it is no longer visible. That's why we use the atonement language in the blood of Jesus. It covers sin. So it is no longer visible. And then not counted. This is a legal term that our account is no longer negative. It is not counted against us. We do not have sins on our slate. So David is saying, blessed is the one who all these things apply to him. The three bad that that come along with the fall, but the three good that come along with forgiveness, that come from a savior. Remember about repetition. So this is a full range of implication. All the sins of all your life, everything that you could possibly do wrong, you need them covered. You need them forgiven. You need them not counted against you. I mean, this is so important that in the most important doctrine in the New Testament and that led to the Reformation, Paul quoted this. Turn to Romans chapter 4 with me. Before we start reading... We just think about, we're in the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And the heart of the Reformation was standing up and saying that I am justified by my faith in Jesus Christ and not by my works. I mean, this is huge. 
My sins are forgiven because of Christ, not because of me. It's why we're not Roman Catholics to this day. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And Paul quotes this very psalm to drive this home. Look at Romans 4 for me, starting in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. All right, wait a second. What does he mean there? For the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. Everyone who has a job, raise your hand. I'm not, gonna, I'm not embarrassing you guys. If you go to work, no one works all day, and when your boss hands you a check at the end of the week, says, thank you, you're so generous, what a nice gift. No, no one goes to work expecting a gift. When you work, you expect wages. You expect someone to pay me for what I did. I signed up for a job. I want to receive what is due to me for the work that I've done. If not, I'm out of here. Because if you worked all week and your boss said, hey, here's a cookie. What a nice gift. Come see you next week. You're going to be like, I will, see, I'm, I will never see you. So Paul's saying, if you work, you're expecting something in return. And salvation is not of works. Because if I did it, I'd expect my reward because of what I've done. But Paul gives us a different picture in verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So salvation is not of works, it is of belief, it is of faith. It is a work of God, not a work of man. Because if we work for it, we can also screw it up. That'll be good news to come later. Let's keep reading. Just as David counted, um, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are the lawless deeds, excuse me, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul's saying, he's quoting David here. Um, you know, a lot of people like to say, and there's this a popular scholarly movement to say, Paul made all this stuff up. Paul created Christian theology. Paul created justi- justification by faith. Jesus never taught this. David taught this. Hundreds of years before Christ, David understood that I need forgiveness. And we'll see in a moment, it's not coming from David. David's dried up and wasted away in his own iniquity. Paul's saying, this is not something you work for. You trust and believe forgiveness. This is so crucial. Because what I said earlier is what separates us from every other religion on the planet. Everyone else is trying to work their way. is trying to be better. I need to do more, be better, do more, so that some God somewhere or my idea of a God somewhere will be pleased with me. Unless you're perfect... You're just toiling for no reason. And the good news for believers is that we can rest in our belief. Rest in our faith. Let's keep going. Back in Psalm 32. Now we get into where David is. All right. So David sets the foundation in verse 1 and 2. In verse 3 starts the process. Starts with the problem. Listen to this. See if any of this sounds familiar. If anyone has ever been here. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
Though my groan, through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever been there? You ever had unrepentant sin torment you? Things you haven't brought to the Lord? You ever kept silent, not sought the Lord and remained in your sin and wrestled with it? I have. I was comfortable in my sin for most of my life. So God made me miserable in it. And it was the depth, my emptiness, and my darkness, and my lack of goodness that brought me to my knees literally in tears. Me, a sinner. And this is David. Look at this picture. Notice the, the, the three again. My bones are wasted away. Your hand was on me day and night. I'm dried up as in the heat of summer. We live in Florida. We know what the heat of summer feels like. We know what the surface of the sun feels like. Imagine 1 p.m. On, uh, in, in the middle of July, standing on, on, on blacktop with no water in sight. You want to know what wasted, wasting away feels like? This is how David feels when he keeps silent in his sin, when he doesn't come before God with forgiveness. And I love that science is still trying to catch up with the wisdom of God. Breaking study. Brand new coming out of uh, the University of Manchester. There's this neuroscientist that says there's a direct link between depression and guilt. Hmm. 21st century, man, cutting edge. And this, this connection between guilt and depression stems from a negative attitude about oneself and guilt from one's faults. Man, I wish someone would have thought of this sooner. Sin is heavy. David, the man after God's own heart, knew this. He was wasting away. God's heavy hand was on him. He was depressed because of his own guilt. But of course, David had a good counselor and some great medication that got him through it, right? No. Verse 5, what is his, who is his counselor? What is his medication? I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. David is desperate for forgiveness. David is turning to the Lord. Step one, acknowledge sin. That's why AA is so successful. It's rooted in biblical principles. Step one, recognize there is a problem. Because if there is no sin, there is no problem, there is no solution. There is no redemption in any of that. And it's amazing how in verse 1 and 2, this is general. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's general. But look at verse 5. David makes it personal. I acknowledge my sin, my iniquity, my transgression. And we can sing songs about being forgiven. Those things all sound great. We sang great songs this morning. Grace it is greater than all my sin. Grace alone, the fount of every blessing. These are great general songs. But what's amazing is when they're personal. Grace it is greater than all my sin. Grace alone applied to my iniquities. The man of sorrow died for my transgressions. Can you declare that? When you sing those songs, do you see your sin? 
your transgression forgiven? Are they just nice tunes about some guy 2,000 years ago hanging on a cross? That's when the Christian life gets real, is when you see your sins on the cross. And you see your iniquities forgiven. Because when David confesses before the Lord, the weight is lifted. And he said, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isn't it amazing how that works? That old saying that confession is good for the soul? Yes, it is. Not to a priest, to your heavenly father who forgives. Immediately, David is turned this forgiveness and his weight is lifted. And it is never brought up again in this psalm. People ask, is our culture getting worse? Does it seem like sin is more rampant? Um, does it seem like Things are worse than they were 10 years ago. You know what the problem is here? Skip step one. There is no acknowledgement of sin anymore. Even within the church, we're scared to talk about difficult things. We want everyone to be comfortable. We don't want them to go away. We don't ever want them to be uncomfortable in their sin. People are more concerned with standing with the world than they are with standing with the word. And in our church... We will always stand with the word and not the world. Because there is no forgiveness in the world. But as we will see, for those who are forgiven, there is hope and there is counsel and there is guidance in the word. And oh yeah, we talked about depression earlier. I want to know what the cure is for Christian depression. Pay attention. What is the cure to depression? Is it more counseling sessions? Is it more feel-good pats on the back? More medication? If you recognize and confess your sins and believe that he can forgive them, you are eternally forgiven by the Son of God. No counseling needed. The weight of guilt and depression and, and, and hurt is based on what we do, where we fail. We will fail. But where he succeeds, he succeeded once and for all. There's relief. There's forgiveness. There's a sigh. I am forgiven. And there is nothing I can do to screw that up or change that. Amen? Therefore, David says in verse 6, Learn from me. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Everyone who is godly. I mean, these are faithful people connected to a faithful God. Godly people pray. David's saying, learn from me. I hid and I was miserable. Pray to God. Confess your, your sins. Trust me, it's a lot better. If you confess your sins before God, there's relief. And there is protection because surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Remember Sermon on the Mount, we talked about those who build their house on a rock versus those who build their house on the sand. It's the same imagery. Jesus is drawing on David here. Jesus is saying, if you are rooted in the rock, if you are rooted in me, great waves will come and they will not reach you. You know what that house founded on a rock is? It's built on repentance and prayer. Repentance and prayer. Because that is the rhythm of the Christian life. Lord, forgive me. I have sinned. 
Restore me. I am whole. Lord, forgive me. I am sinned. Restore me. I am whole. Not ultimately, because in Christ all our sins are forgiven, but in the midst of sin, there's this distance. Us in sin is like little kids with their, with their fingers in their ears. They're like, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear my sin. I don't want to acknowledge what I'm doing. God, I don't want to hear your word right now. Don't talk to me. I've got this under control, yet I'm miserable and torn up inside. House on the rock of repentance and prayer and forgiveness. As the waters of this world cannot touch you, when you are prayerfully covered by God's grace, and you recognize that your sins are atoned for and that He holds your salvation, not you. That is the encouragement. Because in that is a hiding place. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. In verse 3 and 4, he was silent. He was hiding in his own sin. Now he's hiding in the Lord. What a beautiful picture between us cowering in the corner and our own sin, just hiding, hoping that God doesn't see me, hoping no one else sees the ugliness inside of me. Then he repents and he's able to hide in the Lord. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We use Psalm 96.2 often. Because it's, so, it, it, it's so rich. But this is what shouts of deliverance sound like. Praise the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Excuse me. That is evangelistic. But it is an encouragement for brothers and sisters in Christ. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Are you discouraged? You're saved. Are you discouraged? You are forgiven. Are you discouraged? Christ paid it all. Stop trying to pay for your own sins. Those are the shouts of deliverance that David hears. He is preserved. He is hidden. He is protected with, cor- with praise choruses that remind him every time he forgets. Later we're going to sing Rock of Ages, Clef for Me, Let Me Hide Myself in Thee. The words of that song, when the, when the thunder is, is, is crackling and the lightning threatens and the waves are coming, the Rock of Ages is our shelter, is our hiding place, is our refuge in the storm. So with repentance and Restoration comes forgiveness. And what else comes? Verse 8, ears to hear. For the forgiven there is instruction. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Notice the three again. Teach, excuse me, instruct, teach, and counsel. There's emphasis here. That for those who are forgiven, for those who are mine, for those who hide themselves in me, I will teach them, I will instruct them, I will guide them, I will counsel them. Want to know God's will? Want to know the way you should go? Read his instruction. Stay in his word. It will teach you, it will guide you, it will counsel you. We're not to neglect instruction. We're not to neglect teaching. We're not to neglect godly counsel. God speaks through his word. He guides us by his spirit and he encourages encourages us in the body. 
I'm glad we brought those praise reports about our community groups earlier. Because those are the times when we talk about our doubts and our fears and we read the text together and we encourage one another. We let God's word counsel us. We become counselors to each other. Does God still speak? Of course he does. He speaks through his word. He speaks through his spirit. He speaks through his people. All under his watchful eye. Does not escape him. So he's saying, be like this. Be someone rooted in my word. Repent, believe in me. Don't be like this. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. I got in a little trouble a couple weeks ago because we were talking about sheep. And apparently sheep are not the dumbest animals out there. From what I'm told, I guess, I guess turkeys will drown themselves. if Turkeys will look up at the rain and they will drown because they don't know enough to bring their head back down to empty out the water, something like that. So maybe we'll let sheep off the hook just in that instance. So now we're going to talk about horses. I know we have a lot of horse owners here. Um, and we're not going to say anything derogatory about horses. Of course not. But what we are going to say is that there's a different type of understanding for those made in God's image. You can't sit down with a horse at the dinner table and walk them through fractions. There's not an understanding there. You can't go, through, go in a Bible study with a mule. It doesn't happen. Don't be like them. And if you're in our James study this week, we talked about a bridle. What does a bridle do? How does a bridle and bit function? Horses are strong, wild animals. And if they are not controlled and directed, like David said, they will, they, they will not stay near you. Let us not be like that, where our tongues, as James tells us, can, can get us into trouble if we don't, if we don't bridle them. And so um, we're not to be like animals. We're not made in the image of God. But we are to be as his people who follow his instruction, who learn from his teaching, who walk according to his counsel. And so he goes on. Now the lesson is kind of the, the moral at the end of the story comes here. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surround those who trust in the Lord. All right, so we know there's steadfast love for those who trust in the Lord. What do the wicked trust in? Ultimately. What do you say? Themselves. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Because ultimately, if you're trusting in a God who's not a God at all, you're ultimately trusting in yourself. Back to the garden, Adam and Eve trusted in themselves. We want to be like God. We want to know the knowledge of good and evil. Even though we didn't create this beautiful garden, we don't know how most of it works. God's provided everything we needed up until this point, but now we've got this. Many of the sorrows of the wicked who trust in themselves. But for those who trust in the Lord, there is steadfast love. Who do you trust in? When sorrows come, when you're in the midst of your sin, trusting in yourself, how often have you let yourself down? Me? Every day I let myself down. And every time I trust in myself, I end up disappointing myself. And then there's this just ugly cycle. That any, any of you ever been on that hamster wheel with me? Yeah. Yes? Yeah? There's steadfast love for the ones who trust in the Lord. 
steadfast. It is unshaking, unchanging, because He is unshaking. He is unchanging. Not in ourselves, but in Him. And verse 11 is this great triumphal chorus. When all this is done, we see another three. The beautiful three, right? Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all the upright at heart. David rejoiced when he realizes his sins were forgiven. How much more should we rejoice in Christ to realize that all of our sins were taken by him on the cross? If we trust in him, even when our faith is insufficient, his sacrifice is not insufficient. You say, oh, this is too big for Jesus. He missed one of my sins. Are you kidding? Rejoice. Because all your sins are forgiven. One last passage. Uh, It'll actually be up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I love this. Um, Paul's concern for the church in Corinth. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul's comfort to the church. I'm happy about your grief. Oh, thanks, Paul. I put that on a Hallmark card, right? I'm happy because you're grief. No, I'm not happy because of your grief. I'm happy that your grief led you to repentance. And it led you to reconciliation with God. And it produces joy, not death. Repentance is turning. We've said this so many times. It is turning from your previous self. Dying to yourself saying, Lord, I need you. I can't do it without you. And then like David, I am restored. You guide me and you teach me and you cause me to celebrate. Rejoice because you are forgiven. Rejoice in Christ's righteousness. Shout for joy. Rejoice with a new heart. This is a command. Now, when we close the sermon, uh, I want to do something a little different. We're not used to doing this in church. You guys are used to sitting there and looking at me. This is a command. We're going to shout together. You ever shouted in the middle of a sermon? All right. There's there's, there's the first one. Now, here's how this is going to work. We're going to do this little exercise. I'm going to say what David said, and we're going to shout together that I have been forgiven, if indeed you have trusted in Christ for your salvation. And each time we say it, I want you to get a little louder. I want you to say it like you mean it and like you believe it. The first thing is the burden of your transgression has been lifted. That was pitiful. One more time. The burden of your transgressions has been lifted. There you go. The wrath of God against your sin has been covered by Christ. You got to get louder for this next one. Your iniquity is no longer counted against you. I have been forgiven. Amen. You should almost pray right there. Um, amen. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Quickly, this life has up and downs. We will sin. Every one of us in here will sin before we leave this room today. Most of you will sin before you get up. It's true. I just sinned right there. I was prideful. Sorry. Um, (laughs) 
But there is forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ. Not just for our sins for eternity, which is a beautiful thing, that eternally our sins are paid for and hidden in Christ, but daily we can come before Him. We can pour out our heart to Him. We can cry out to Him. He will cover our iniquities. Our sins will not be counted against us. Our transgressions will be left in the past. Praise be to our God, we are forgiven in Christ. Every jealous moment, every greedy moment, every lie, every dark thing that you've done, every deep part of you that you're still holding on to, confess your sin before the Lord. Be reconciled to Him. He will guide you. He will strengthen you. Because He is good. His mercy endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as sinners. I come before you as a sinner, not even worthy to let your name roll off of my tongue. But you've forgiven me. Not because I deserved it, not because I was better than anyone else, because you were better than anything I could do on my own. You loved us before the foundation of the world. You saw our sin and loved us anyway. You sent your son to bear your wrath and the penalty for what we did so that we could be forgiven, so we could be redeemed, we could be reconciled to you. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you that if our faith and our trust is in you, it is unshakable, it is unchanging because it is rooted in you and not in our faith. Lord, let us never stray away from this central message of the gospel. That our sins are covered in you. That those who repent and believe are adopted and covered and protected forever. And we will one day rejoice with you in your kingdom where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more depression, no more disappointment. Because it is held together by you perfectly and our sin is banished as far as the east is from the west. Let's pray that as we sing this closing song that it would take root. That we would walk out of this room rooted in the rock of ages. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen.